Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Journey Through Genesis. Oh, so sorry. Um, welcome back to the Journey Through Genesis classes. Um, we are talking today about um, Joseph and his brothers. We're continuing that, and we're going to be uh, studying chapter 37 of Genesis. Um, as usual, uh, please feel free to raise your hands and ask questions and ask questions in the chat. I'll be moderating that. Um, so, yeah, please feel free to participate and enjoy. Okay, we should start. Okay. Um, all right, can everybody hear me? Okay. Well, let's begin with, uh, let's continue where we left off last time. Uh, the story is that Yaakov has sent Yosef to meet his brothers who have left without him in the 12th Pasuk of chapter 37. They've left without him. Beginning of the chapter, it says Joseph was a shepherd together with his brothers. And in verse 12 already, he's a shepherd, he, they're shepherding without him, which of course reflects the fact that he's incurred that both the jealousy of his brothers and the hatred of his brothers. It's a very dangerous situation. Yaakov sends Yosef out and the uh, interpretation that was offered last week, he sends him to, to make peace. In verse number 14, shalom can be welfare, but shalom is peace. The peace of your brothers, the peace of the flock, how they're doing, and report back to me. He sent him from the valley of Hebron to Yaakov, and he came to Shechem. He headed towards Shechem because Yaakov had said in verse number 12, are your brothers not in Shechem? The interpretation that we offered, which I think is what Rashi suggests, is that Shechem is already, story of Shechem is chapter 34, but, and Shechem has many different pieces to it, but one of them is, it's a city where brothers defended the honor of their sister. They may have defended it in the, in the wrong way, but the bottom line is, it's their sister, it's their sibling. And what Yaakov, I think, is depending on or thinking about is, are your brothers not in Shechem? They, at the end of the day, they're your brothers. And Yaakov relies upon that. Yaakov hopes that brotherly feeling will overcome the animosity that has been engendered in the beginning of chapter 37. And now we're told that Joseph in verse 14 literally came to Shechem. He arrives in Shechem in verse number 14. And now we have a most interesting uh, incident that takes place. We began this last time. And I'll read it. A man found Joseph, who was toeba sodeh, one might say lost in the field. So he's, he's lost. He can't find exactly, he's searching for his brothers. He doesn't know where they are. He is toeh. And this ish, this person, says to Joseph, what are you looking for? And Joseph says, I'm searching for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are shepherding? And the ish responds in verse 17, They've departed from here. I heard them say we're going to Dotan. So Joseph searches for his brothers 
and he finds them in Dotan. In fact, that's where they are. So let me just make have a few reflections upon these verses, some of which we've mentioned already in the past. I'll repeat them. And it's a good introduction to our study today. The first point is that Joseph is sent to Shem to make peace. But he doesn't arrive in time. By the time he comes to Shem, they've already departed from Shem. Rashi makes the comment on Nasu Mizeh, they've left here. And Rashi comments, I think very perceptively, Nasu Achava, they've left brotherliness. So Rashi is reflecting the view. If we only find them in Shem, things would be all right, but he doesn't. Now, why doesn't he find them in Shem? So over here it says, because Joseph got lost. So failure to find them in Shem, among other things, is one might say, if you want to blame someone, we can blame Joseph. Because Toeh in this book is not a matter of not having a good sense of direction. The Toeh is much more than that. He lost his way. And we, we referenced that last time. It appears either three or four times in Genesis. It's always the same. Losing your way. So he doesn't find them in Shem. That's the first point. He's come, he's come too late. The train has left. Comes too late. Second point, which is a very interesting point, says, a man found him. A man finds Joseph who was lost and says to Joseph, what are you looking for? My brothers. Oh, they've left here already. I heard them saying they're going to Dotan. So what's interesting here is that this ish, this mysterious ish, and the word ish appears three times, by the way, the ish actually goes over to Joseph. He says to Joseph, the man, he finds Joseph, which is very striking because usually when one is lost or doesn't know exactly where to go, you might stop and ask somebody for directions. You might uh, consult your ways if you're traveling, or you might stop someone in the street and ask about a particular address or location. It is a rare thing that the person comes to you and says to you, where are you? What do you, you look lost. Where are you? Where do you want to go? So here the issue is proactively asking Joseph, where do you want to go? And that suggests to us, and who is the ish? We don't know. Mysterious ish. But we encountered a similar ish earlier in chapter 32 when Jacob wrestles with the so-called angel. But there it's an ish, a person wrestled with Jacob until dawn, trying to prevent Jacob from entering the land. In this particular case, it's the issue sends Joseph out of the land. And the third point, and I've made this point several times, I'll repeat it now, is that the Torah says that Jacob sent Joseph from Hebron to Shem. And here the important point is that if we think about the journeys both of Abraham and Yaakov, when Abraham comes into the land, he enters in at Shem in chapter 12, then to Bethel, then to Hebron. When Jacob returns from the house of Lavan, he goes to Shem, chapter 34, end of chapter 33, chapter 34, 
Then he goes to Beit El in chapter 35. At the end of 35, he goes to Hebron. So that's the way it works. You enter in Shechem, then Beit El, and then Hebron. Hebron means that you, a real sense of, of that's your place. That's where Sarah is buried. That's Maratamach Pegua. That's a symbolic possession of the land. But what would it mean to travel in the opposite direction, which is what the Torah says? He sent Joseph from Hebron to Shechem. So you're headed, in a sense, out of the land. And if you miss your stop, you're out. So the point is that missing them in Shechem suggests the possibility that the next stop will be outside the land. And in fact, it will be for Joseph outside the land. He's going to end up in this chapter in Egypt. But before he gets to Egypt, he will find his brothers in Dotan. He finds them in Dotan. Now, whatever Dotan means, it can't be good. Because in the Torah, the two big troublemakers in the rest of the Torah, Dotan and Aviram. So that probably means quarrel or trouble, something along those lines. So meeting them, in, and, the, and the Ish sends Joseph to Dotan. He finds them in Dotan. So we, we the reader, know because the Torah already has set up an expectation. Joseph had sent Joseph on a Jacob had sent Joseph on a peace mission, but that's in Shechem. But he's missed Shechem. He's missed that, missed that possibility. He got lost along the way. And now we're told in verse number 17, and now we get to verse 18. They saw him from a distance, and before he came to them, they conspired to kill him. They planned to kill Joseph. Very important to remember that. Their intention, and not just intention, what they do will actually end up with Joseph's death. They're going to murder their brother. Here, the tragedy, I think, that what the Torah suggests is precisely it's clear that Joseph comes on a peace mission, both from what Yaakov had said, and Joseph accepts it, and the important verse earlier when the Ish, mysterious Ish, says to Joseph, what are you looking for? And Joseph says, I'm searching for my brothers. It sounds like he really wants to connect to his brothers. He really wants to do what Jacob had suggested that he do which is inquire of their welfare, inquire of shalom, remembering that the beginning of the chapter says, they could not speak peaceably with Joseph. In fact, they don't talk to him at all, it would appear. They leave without him. And now Joseph's on a peace mission to try to make peace. But if you don't even hear what the other person has to say, you can't possibly make peace. You have to be able to hear what the person is saying. And you, you decide what to do with what the person is saying. But over here, they saw him from the distance, and even before he gets there, they conspire to kill him. And now we have, I'll read a few more verses and I'll stop for comments or questions. And now we have in verse 19, one said to his, to his brother. Does that mean they all said? is singular. Is there some brother or brothers that stand out? It's a good question. But certainly, Isha does suggest 
that all of them somehow are, are involved in this. We can't say it's just X or just Y. All the brothers together. It's not clear whether Benjamin is there. It sounds like Binyamin may not be there, but all the others are there. And one said, Ish el said, one said to the other, the dreamer, the master of dreams, the dreamer, the one over there is coming. You see from this that what actually disturbed them more than anything else are Joseph's dreams. As it said earlier, they hated him on account of the dreams and his words. And the words, I presume, means he's telling them the dream. It's bad enough that he has these dreams, that they will grovel in front of him. But he also tells them the dreams. That's what bothers them. It's never clear in the Chumash that they know that Joseph is spying on them, reporting to uh, Yaakov. It's not clear they know that. What they do know is the dreams. The master of dreams is coming, the one over there, Halazah. And now they say to each other in verse number 20, Viata, now, let's kill him. And we'll throw him into the, one of the pits in the desert. There are pits. The Yamarnu, and we will say, a wild animal ate him. Let's see what comes of his dreams with this dreamer. So here, there clearly is an intention to kill, to kill him, and on top of that, to cover it up and to blame it on someone else, in this case, a wild animal, and to throw him into the pit. You know, in reading these verses, the Torah, of course, as we know, apologists notwithstanding, pulls no punches. They simply intend to murder their brother. What's interesting is, when the Torah speaks, or, Torah speaks earlier of murder, in fact, one of the earliest stories in the Torah is a brother killing brother, the story of Cain and Hevel. And remember when Cain killed Hevel, uh, God asked Cain in chapter four, where is your brother? And um, the Cain uh, says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God says, what have you done? The cries, the, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. So apparently what Cain had done was killed his brother and buried him. And throw and uh, and and cover them with uh, with throw so cover them with 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 with, with the earth. God says to Cain that the blood cries out mina adama from the earth that opened his mouth. God says to Cain later. So it's interesting that over here we have one might say the brothers intend to kill him, but they intend to one might say to use the earth or the bar right, as a kind of accomplice to the crime. And not only that, but they also want to blame it on wild animals. I'm reminded of what the Torah says earlier when it talks about murder. Cain Behevel is a story about murder, but later on the Torah warns, God speaks to Noah about running the world after the flood. And God says to Noah, you're going to run the world. And specifically, God said to Noah, that uh, in the beginning of chapter nine, uh, and in verse number five of chapter nine, 
מיד כוחיו את רישלו, ומיד האדם, מיד איש אחיו, את ראש הנפש האדם, שהופך דם האדם באדם דמו יישפך, כי בצלם אלוהים עשה את האדם, וגוד סד, you may not eat flesh with life blood in it, your own life blood I will require a reckoning. I will require it of every beast, of the human too, where I require a reckoning for human life, every one for that of his fellow human being. What's interesting is that specifically God mentions holding both animals and humans responsible. And the word that appears in chapter nine is the God says, Edrosh, I will be the resh, I will demand. And later in the Chumash, when the brothers are in Egypt um, and Joseph threatens them to imprison them, maybe to kill them, and Ruvain speaks up, or well, it says one said to the other in chapter 40, let's find that verse, it's very striking. In chapter um, 42, let's find that chapter 42, um, verse number 21, Joseph has threatened them, he accused them of being spies. Verse 21, one said to his brother, exactly the same language that we have here. We're guilty about our brother, about Joseph. He cried out for us in his distress. We paid no attention. That's why these terrible things are happening to us. Then Ruvain speaks up in verse 22. Did I not say to you? Don't harm the boy. You didn't listen. And his blood is being sought out. It's exactly the language the Torah used about murder in chapter 9. In short, what we have over here is conspiracy to commit murder. And they're going to involve, not just themselves, they're going to involve the earth and they're going to blame it on the wild animals. So this is a clear case of premeditated, cold-blooded murder. That's what they intend to do. Now let's come back to our verse, verse number 21. Ruvain, the oldest son, hears what they're saying. And he saves Joseph. He saved Joseph from their hand. From there, they got a plan to kill him. And Reuben said, We shall not. We will not. Um, we will not. Uh, let's see how we translate. Let us not take his life to translate here. Let us not take his life. Lo na kenu nefesh. Literally, to smite him, to hit him. Let's not kill him with our own hands. And then Ruvain might have said, "Let's just send them back home. Let's walk away from this." But that's not what he says. In the next verse, what he says is, "Don't shed blood." Again, reminding us of the verse in chapter 9, One who sheds the blood of a human, by human shall his blood be shed. So Reuven says, Don't shed blood, but Rather throw him into this pit. Don't, 
let your hand be not against him. Take him, throw him into the pit. Says Reuven, that's, we won't be killing him. We'll throw him into the pit. And then the Torah says, why did Reuven say this? Ruman, Hatzil Otomi Adam, to save him from their hand. Rashivo El Aviv, to return him to his father. And what's interesting is, it's not clear that his father is Joseph's father or Reuven's father. But Reuven distinguishes here in these verses between killing Joseph uh, with our own hand, which we shouldn't do, shedding blood, but rather let's throw him into the pit. Now, what happens if you throw Joseph into the pit? He plans to save Joseph. When they're not looking, he's going to go back to the pit, pull Joseph out of the pit and send him home. That's his intention. Clearly, that's his intention. But, and here's the point, but that's not what he says to them. So what does he say to them? And he thinks his, his, his argument is a strong argument that they will accept it. What he says is, let's not kill him with our own hands. Let's throw him into the pit. And what will happen to Joseph in the pit? Joseph will die in the pit. You're in the pit in the middle of a desert. And the Torah makes it very clear um, in, in verse number 24, 23, when Joseph comes, they took off his coat, the coat that Jacob had given him, the coat which symbolized his authority, his preeminence. They take that off him. And they took him, Joseph, they threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. The pit had no water. Now, when you're in a desert and you have no water, we had that story earlier with Yishmael. The, the water ran out, chapter 21, and Hagar stands from a distance. Of course, she said, I don't want to see the boy die. In short, what's going to happen to Joseph? If no, nobody intervenes over here, and the brothers don't believe anybody will intervene, we know Reuben's thinking somehow of intervening. But if nobody does intervene, Joseph will die. He won't die in the next hour, and he may not die in the next day, but he will die in the desert, a slow death, and he will die of starvation and thirst. That is the brother's intention, to kill him. Let's not forget that. They fully intend to kill him, but Reuben says, there's a difference, Ruben says, between killing him with their own hands, stabbing him or whatever it is, or just throwing him into a pit where he will die later on. Ruben makes that distinction between what might say causing his death, as certain as the death may be, and killing with your own hands. Now, one can question whether that distinction uh, carries any weight. Is that actually a valid distinction? That's a very interesting question. Those of us who have studied Talmud, the Talmud has a lot of discussion about that and does seem to distinguish. On the other hand, uh, on the other hand, uh, one might argue that from a, a moral standpoint, uh, the, um, it's better to die quickly, just stab, you're dead, as opposed to lingering in a pit for several days and dying slowly of thirst and, star and, and, and starvation. 
Now, we know Ruvain's intention, but my, my point here is the following. So it's a subtle point, actually. When I make an argument to you that we should do whatever my real motive is, but the argument I make to you is an argument that I believe is sensible. I'm not going to make a crazy argument. So this argument that Ruvain makes that we're not really killing him, he actually believes that to be the case. He doesn't want Joseph to die because... He intends to return Joseph to his father, Rashivo Elaviv, to bring him back to Yaakov. This is the story that we have so far. So Ruvain has at least saved Joseph temporarily. And of course, when you throw somebody in the pit and you don't kill him right away, there's always the chance that something will happen. Someone will intervene. Circumstances will change, a change of heart. When there's life, there's hope. But on the other hand, let's, make, let's be clear about this. Their intention is unequivocal, which is to kill their brother. Okay, let me read a couple more verses, then I'll stop and take comments and questions. Now we have the next verse. It's interesting, by the way, that the Torah here does not say anything about Joseph's response, unlike later on. Unlike later on, where Ruvain, the brother, said, we're guilty for our brother. We heard his cries when he pleaded with us, and we paid no attention. But here, the Torah makes no mention of Joseph's pleading or crying. It simply says they threw him into the pit. And the pit was empty. It had no water. That's verse 24. And then we continue reading in verse 25. They sat down to eat lechem, can mean bread. But usually lechem is more than just bread. It is a meal. It can be meat. Korbani lachmi, the, the sacrifices are called lechem, they're meat, they're not bread. So lechem means a, a meal, a robust meal. They sit down to eat a meal. They're eating a meal. Notice the contrast between the end of chapter 20, verse 24 and the beginning of 25. The end of 24, habarek he doesn't have any water. And they're sitting down to eat a big meal. And later on we discover it wasn't that far away. It wasn't so far away because they could hear his cries. It's not clear from over here, but it sounds like one comes right after the other. And here it's interesting. It's one thing to kill somebody. Torah does not suggest that is anything short of a hideous crime. But you know something? We understand they jealous of him, they hate him and everything. But what does it mean actually? To have somebody 15 feet away from you who has no water, who's starving to death, and you sit down a few feet away and have a festive meal. What does it say about those people? The Torah, of course, typically doesn't make any comment. The narrator is so-called neutral. Of course, the narrator is not really neutral. But what could that mean? What does that say about the person who behaves that way? Awful, isn't it? And now, before I get to the let me make a reflect upon something else, which I, I actually talk about in my latest book called Malchut Adam in a different context. Why does the Torah emphasize, or what is the point of verse 23, when Joseph came to him, they took off his coat. What is that about? Why is that mentioned altogether? They took off his coat. Now, of course, we know 
And perhaps this is one of the reasons that they're going to say later on, they say they're going to say, let's kill him. And we'll throw him in a pit. And we'll say a wild animal ate him. But later on in the story, when Joseph is missing and presumed dead, they slaughter a goat and they dip his coat in the blood of the goat and they bring it to their father. So one reason for taking off the coat, the coat will be the so-called evidence that in fact Joseph has died. That's what they're thinking. And they're going to blame it on the animal, the wild animal that devoured Joseph. That's one, totally one possible understanding of it, one possible explanation. In my book, I suggested something else. And without getting to all the details of it, I'll just allude to the story that may be familiar to many of us, which is that when David, who's been anointed king privately, but is not yet the king of Israel, is pursued by King Saul, which is a good part of the first book of Shmuel, and the famous story is that when Shoal is pursuing David, um, that he enters a cave and David sneaks up behind King Saul and cuts off a piece of his coat. Then when Saul leaves the cave, and then it says after David, because David's men said to David in chapter 24 of Shmuel Aleph, here's your opportunity to kill the man who's chasing after you, who's trying to kill you. It says David went and cut off his coat. And after David cut off his coat in chapter 24, then David said to his men, his men wanted to kill Shaul, and David said, we can't kill Saul. We can't kill the anointed of God. And David forcibly prevented his men from killing Saul. Then Saul leaves the cave, and David says to Saul, very famously, look, Saul, he says, King Saul, I, you see, look, look at your coat. You see it's torn? I could have killed you, but I didn't kill you. You have evidence I could have killed you, but I didn't. I don't try to kill you. So why are you chasing after me to try to kill me? I'm innocent. And Saul says, you're so right, David. I'm, you are right and I'm wrong, etc." The question is, what I suggest in the book is the following. I suggest, and I'll keep it very brief, that there's something very strange about that story, because it says the men said to David, here's your opportunity to kill him. And David cuts off the garment of Saul, corner of the garment. And then it says David's men rose up to kill Saul. And David said, God forbid to kill the anointed of God. And David forcibly prevents them from killing Saul. And later, David says, look, he says, you see, I could have killed you, says to Saul, but I chose not to. Why do you kill me? question is, is that David's explanation after the fact, revisionist history, or is that actually David's intention in the story? So my argument in the book, which I think is a very correct one, I must say, is that that was not David's initial intention. David's initial intention was that his men would kill Saul. But you can't just kill Saul. Saul is the king of Israel. Saul is the, Saul is the king. He represents the people. He's also the anointed of God. So the cutting of Saul's coat by David was a way to say, in effect, he's not the king. When you kill Saul now, you're not killing King Saul, which you can't do. But you can kill Saul, the one who pursues me, Saul. And when David cuts that coat of Saul, Saul becomes fair game. And then David 
Then David regrets it. And he says, no, we shouldn't kill him. He may not be much of a king, but he was the anointed of God. And then he forcibly prevents his men from killing Saul. Then later, revisionist history, he says, no, you see, I, instead of killing you, I cut your coat. But that wasn't the initial intention. I mentioned all that now. Yes, it's a, it's a terrific interpretation. It's, it's, sometimes you say, maybe it's right. This I know is right. It's clearly the case. And why do I mention all this now? Because over here, we have a similar idea in my view, which is they don't like Joseph. They hate, I mean, don't like, they hate Joseph. They can't stand the guy. And they also resent him bitterly. But their father chose him. So just to kill Joseph is not a simple matter. Because it's not just killing Joseph, their brother, but it's killing the one that Jacob has chosen. And by taking off the coat, what they're doing in effect is suggesting that Joseph has this authority, the authority in, invested in him by Jacob is somehow neutralized by removing the coat. He's no longer Jacob's favorite son. He's no longer Joseph the leader, Joseph the chosen one. He's just bratty little Joseph. And that become, that makes it possible as it were to carry out their plan, which is to kill him. Okay, Ruben stops him from killing them with immediately, but they're gonna, he'll die anyway. They throw him into the pit. That was my suggestion, is my suggestion about the um, Ketonet Pasim. Let me take a couple more verses and I'll stop uh, for a while. Anyway, they're sitting down to eat their meal. Has the filet mignon, give me another cup of wine, whatever. And they look up, they, they raise their eyes, they look up. And behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilad. And the camels were bearing the chot, tzri, and lot are uh, spices, uh, gum, balm, and I don't know, these are fancy spices, high-level spices, expensive commodities. They're taking them to Egypt to sell in Egypt. So they're bringing all these fancy things down to Egypt. And now they all see these camels, and now Judah speaks up. The one who spoke up earlier was Ruvain, and now Judah. Ruvain is brother number one, and Judah is brother number four. By implication, brothers two and three are the ones who don't say nothing, and brothers two and three are none other than Shimon and Levi, the culprits in Shechem. So they're the ones clearly who are the leaders in terms of killing their brother Joseph. And we know very well about Shimon and Levi, they have great ability when it comes to killing people. Jacob had criticized them in the story of Dina. Now Yehuda speaks up. Wonderful speech. Two verses. Judah said to his brothers, that's how chapter, verse 26 begins, What profit is there to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Verse 27, Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be against him. He after all is our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers heard. The brothers heard. I'll get back to Vayishmu in a minute. 
But the first thing we notice is about Judah's speech, in fact, not just his speech, but verses 26 and 27, that it is chiastic. That is to say, it begins with, and Judah said to his brothers in the beginning of 26, and the last words of 27 is, by Yishma'u Echav, the brothers heard, okay? He had it translated, it says, the brothers agreed, I'll get back to that, but literally heard. And in the middle of the speech, two times, the word achinu appears. That is to say, what Judah is emphasizing is, we shouldn't kill him, why not? Two reasons. First of all, there's no profit. What do we gain by it? If we sell him, maybe we get a good price. And the second point, of course, is at the end of the day, he is our brother. So Judah, Judah seems to understand better than anybody else, you don't kill your brother. Notice something else about Judah's speech that's very important, which is that Reuven had distinguished between letting out our hand be against him, as opposed to throwing him into the pit. When Judah speaks, though, he makes no such distinction. Throwing him into the pit, as far as Yehuda is concerned, is the Ordeno al Tehibo. We are killing him, says Judah. I don't buy this distinction of throwing him in a pit where he dies eventually from starvation or thirst and killing him with our own hands. We are killing him. Make no mistake about it. And we shouldn't do that because he's our brother. He understands you don't kill your brother. Unfortunately, he was absent from school with a uh, sore throat. When they learned in, in, in the cheder, you don't kidnap and sell your brother. He didn't seem to grasp that point, but you don't kill him. So actually what Jacob had said, are your brothers not in Shechem, which we interpreted to mean they are your brothers. What Yaakov said is actually true. There is some sense, at least one of these brothers has a sense of, some sense of brotherliness. You don't kill your brother and we are killing him, says Judah. I don't buy this distinction. Our hand will be against him, and therefore we shouldn't do that. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, to the Ishmaelim. We have already remarked in the past several times about the parallels between Joseph on one hand and Yishmael on the other. The desert, the, the, the taunting, etc. Uh, so here we have, of course, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites by Yishmau Echav. Now, what does it mean by Yishmau Echav? Here, the translation is the brothers agreed. So the verb to lishmoa, to hear, has several different possible meanings in biblical Hebrew. It can mean to hear. It can mean to agree or to accept. It can mean to perceive. It has multiple possible meanings. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Does it mean hear, O Israel? Whatever the O is, I don't know. Does it mean hear Israel? It doesn't mean accept Israel. What does it actually mean? It's a good question. Now over here, the question is, did the brothers agree or not? Did the brothers agree or not? Uh, I'm going to share. Did the brothers agree or not? So that's a good question. It's not clear that the brothers agreed necessarily. The translation says the brothers agreed. And certainly, if we follow Rashi, they certainly agreed. Because what does Rashi think? 
here we come to a very important question in the story, who sold Joseph? If you believe, as Rashi suggests, if you believe, as Rashi suggests, that the brothers sold Joseph, then of course, by Echad would mean that they agreed, because in fact, they did sell him. That's if we go with Rashi's interpretation. But if we go with not Rashi's interpretation, but if we go with the Rashabam, what does the Rashabam say? Rashi's grandson? Rashbam says the brothers never sold him. They never sold him. If you believe that the brothers never sold him, which as we will see, to me is clearly the plain meaning of the Torah, that they didn't actually sell him. It's hard to accept the fact that I'm not saying they're not responsible as if they sold him. They are. They didn't actually sell him, obviously. We'll get to that in a minute. If you think they didn't actually sell him, then one need not necessarily presume that means they agreed. Maybe it means they heard. They're thinking about it. They're considering it. And in the interim, what happens then in the very next verse is Midianite traders pass by. So in this next verse, this is the crux over here. Midianites came by and they took Paul Joseph out of the pit. And they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelim for 20 kesef, and they brought Joseph to Egypt. Now, the question is, are the Midianites and are the Ishmaelim the same people? It's not impossible to say they're the same, but it's highly unlikely. If they're the same people, if you want to presume they're the same people, then we could interpret that they sold, they sold is the brothers. If we presume the Midianites and the Ishmaelim are not the same people, which is the plain meaning, then it means that in the interim, the brothers were considering the sale. They were thinking about it. Maybe they even agreed to sell them, but they didn't get a chance to do it because Midianite traders from a different direction came. And in the interim, when they're discussing what to do with Joseph and busy eating the meal, the Midianite traders in the interim pulled Joseph out of the pit sold Joseph to the Ishmaelim, and the Ishmaelim brought Joseph down to Egypt. Now the question is of these two possibilities, which is more plausible in the text? Of course, it would appear that more plausible is the second possibility that the Midianites pulled him out and sold him to the Ishmaelim, because presumably the Midianites and the Ishmaelim are not the same people. But there is actually a much stronger reason to assume that the brothers never actually sold him. Such a strong reason that without recourse to Midrashim, you can't say otherwise. And that is the next verse. Ruben went back to the pit and behold, Joseph is not in the pit. He tore his garments. He went back to his brothers and said, the child is missing. Where shall I go? What will be with me? If the brothers just sold Joseph, what do you mean he goes back to the pit and he says he's not there? And he says to his brothers, he's missing. He's not there. 
Of course he's not there, Chacham. We sold him 10 minutes ago. Well, what do you mean he's not there? We just sold him. And therefore, uh, the argument that they did sell him is extremely dubious. In fact, the Midrashim have to make the claim that in the interim, Reuven went back home. Reuven wasn't there when they sold him, which of course is not mentioned in the text, number one. And number two, remember, back home is, Hev- is, is Hebron. They're in Shechem. They're not next door to each other. But they did, they take this long trip. And in the interim, during the meal, how long did the meal take? They actually sold him and he comes back and there's no response. The boy is missing and what's to be with me? No one says to him, yes, he's missing, we sold him. Therefore, I would say unequivocally, in terms of the plain shot of the Chumash, I believe in this case, there are no two possibilities. There's only one possibility. The brothers never sold it. However, I am not suggesting, because the Torah does not suggest this at all, that they are not responsible for the sale. In fact, actually, it's even worse that they didn't sell him. Because if they sold him, then they would have sold him, didn't kill him. But if they never got around to selling him, remember, the alternative to selling him is actually killing him. So they never got around to selling him. And the alternative, namely, he stays in the pit where he will die, clearly, as Judah said very clearly, and we will be killing him. So the fact that they didn't sell him does not put the brothers in a better light, puts them in a, in, in, in a worse light. Now we can ask ourselves the question, though, in terms of selling him versus not selling him, what is the difference between if they sell him or didn't sell him? Ruvain went back to the brothers and said to them, Hayelad enenu, the boy is enenu, is missing. That's a word that will appear later in the Joseph story several times. What is to be with me? And the point about enenu, he is not, he's missing. What, if he's missing, they didn't sell him. He's missing and maybe even presumed dead, but we don't know what Joseph is. They don't know what Joseph is. So what is incumbent upon the brothers, if they think about what they did, what would be incumbent upon the brothers is to search for him and to find him. And it's interesting, we have already encountered twice in this chapter, a very important little word that will appear later in Breshit in more than one place, a little tiny word. The verb is so to find. You've already encountered it twice in the story. A man found Joseph. He was lost in the field. And then the man sends Joseph to Dotan. He finds them in Dotan. He's, He's looking for his brothers. He wants to make peace with his brothers. And the point of the story, of course, is he's a nenu. And what would be incumbent upon the brothers if they want to repent of their evil ways would be to send out search parties and to try to find him, which is precisely what the brothers do not do, as we will see. So that's an important point over here. If, in fact, they did not actually sell him, which, of course, they didn't, he's a nano. And, okay, let's find him. But no attempt is made to find him, quite the opposite. I'll make one last comment and I'll stop the comments or questions, and that is Ruvain. We have here two brothers in the story. Very interesting. We have Ruvain and we have Yehuda. Ruvain doesn't mention brotherliness at all, actually. 
Not at all. Reuven says something. Reuven's concern is with his father. Whether it's his father means Reuven's father, or whether it means Joseph's father is maybe purposely ambiguous. The Midrashim make the claim, it's interesting, his father means Reuven's father, and that Reuven, remember, Reuven has slept with his father's wife in chapter 35. That Reuven wants to make amends, wants to repair the relationship to his father, which is certainly a possibility. He certainly is concerned about the father. Brotherliness is not his thing. When Yehuda speaks, he talks a different language. We have the fourfold mention of the word ach in verses 26 and 27. He seems to be the one brother who has some understanding of brotherly responsibility. And furthermore, he has a different understanding than Ruvain. He doesn't distinguish between throwing a guy in a pit where he dies in two days or, or, or putting a knife in him where he dies immediately. As far as Yehuda is concerned, it's all the same. Ruvain makes that distinction. Of course, Ruvain's intention is to save Joseph. And Yehuda's intention is to sell him. That puts Ruvain in a better light. But this idea of what Yehuda says is, listen, whatever we do, we are responsible for. This, this, the sense of responsibility, we are killing him, in fact. It makes no difference whether we do it this way or that way. At the end of the day, we're responsible. That's Yehuda's understanding. And that's actually very important that will play out later in terms of responsibility. The last point I want to make about Ruvain is and the beauty of the Chumash. It's always so complicated. The, this verse is interesting. Ruvain went back to his brothers. He returns to his brothers and he says, Two things are interesting. First of all, he calls Joseph a Yelet. The child is missing. It's interesting. Joseph, we're told, was a nar. He was 17. But he, he can be called a nar. He can be called a yelet. Typically, yelet is younger than nar. Sometimes they're used interchangeably. But it has a different valence. He's a kid. The kid is missing. Yes, he did stupid things. Every child does stupid things. Frankly, every adult does stupid things, too. But okay, but the child is more excusable. And then you have the second half. Einenu, va'ani ona ani ba. Notice the einenu ona ani, right? Ani ona ani. And then you have something about moving that's very interesting, which will play out later. Yes, he was concerned about Joseph. Yes, he's concerned about the father. But it would appear that one of his primary concerns, if not his main concern, is somebody whose name is Ruvain. The boy is missing. The boy is, who knows what's to be? Our brother probably dead. He intended to save him. What's going to be with me, he says. Now, of course, in a certain sense, Ruvain might may say this because at the end of the day, it was Ruvain's idea to throw him into the pit. If Ruvain had said, send him home, maybe they would have listened. And from the pit, he's now missing and in the desert, no water. And I guess presumed dead. So there is a sense of responsibility on some level. But the, but the language is interesting. It's very self-focused. And we see this later with Ruvain as well. There is a deep self-focus when it comes to Ruvain, which we don't see with Judah. Judah's different. And let me stop at this point, said a lot of different things. And I'll take some comments and questions, and then we will continue. We still have time. Uh, yeah, okay, so let's, uh, we have about 25 minutes left. Let's uh, spend a few minutes on comments and questions. Please speak up or the chat, okay?
Robert Schiller, what's the point of uh, mentioning the schaira that the Ishmaelim were carrying? Yes, it's a good question. I think the point of it is this. Actually, later on, it's interesting, later on when, the, when Jacob sends his gifts to Egypt, it's very striking. He says, when the brothers come back without Shimon, and Jacob is afraid to send Benjamin to Egypt, and Judah convinces Jacob to send Benjamin to, to Egypt, and um, there we have the um, there we have uh, when Yaakov says, "Okay, take Benjamin and do the best you can," and Judah takes responsibility, and uh, Jacob sends a mincha, a gift to Egypt, and Jacob says in chapter forty-three, he says, "Okay, take the money back that you found in your sacks, and bring the bring down to the person a gift." And the Torah lists the delicacies that they will bring down to, uh, to, uh, to Egypt. And it's interesting, it's parallel to, it's parallel to, what, to what is brought down in our story. So it's interesting. In other words, there it's more about Jacob thinks the mincha will convince the, the, the ish, the viceroy, whatever, to forgive them. But of course, the very things they've given him would recall for Joseph being brought down to Egypt. So the Mincha is not going to save the day. That's clear. I would say something else. The things that are being brought down to Egypt are basically luxuries. These are very fancy spices. We know in the, in the old world, you know, the colonial world, they would go to India, bring back all kinds of spices. They were very expensive. I think the point of it is that Joseph goes down to Egypt. And I think what the Torah wants to remind us about Joseph is, this is not some ordinary kid that's being sold into slavery. This is somebody who is one in 10 billion. Joseph may be boastful. Joseph may be unaware of other people's feelings and all of that stuff. That's all true. But those dreams are gonna be true. Joseph is somebody who is a quite exceptional person. He's someone who comes as a slave to Egypt and in short order, comes down at 17 and age 30, he's a second, he's a foreigner who's second in command in the land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. There's something about this guy that's amazing. And I think being sent down with these very fancy spices is the way of the Torah to remind us that Joseph, somebody very, very special is being brought down to Egypt, special because of his own abilities and special for a different reason. Because remember, and this is an important point, how did Joseph end up in Egypt in the first place? And you can say, well, he can't get along with his brothers, misbehaves, can't get along, you end up in exile. True, but there is another reason, which is, this is God's plan. God's already said to Abraham, your descendants will be strangers and foreigners and slaves and abused. And Joseph is the first slave. Joseph's going to bring all of us down to Mitzrayim. And this is God's plan. The ish is what the ish is important because the Torah is making the claim that when you read the Torah, you have to read it both ways. You have to read it that. 
we end up in exile because people can't get along. That's true. And we end up in exile because it's God's plan. And you may ask, as many have asked, the philosopher says, isn't that a contradiction? If God already has foretold it's going to happen, how can people be judged? How can people have free will if God already has predicted it? And that's a wonderful philosophical question to which I say the following. You're 100% right. There's a complete contradiction between those two things. However, that's the way to read the Chumash, and there's no other way. As it says in Safui, all is foretold and people have free will. That's the presumption of the Chumash. It is God's plan, but yes, people are held accountable for what they do. However you want to solve that puzzle, try your best. So well, that's not my problem. I'm not trying to solve the puzzle. I'm saying a fact about reading the Torah, and that's the fact. The fact is that both are true. It, they may contradict completely, but they're both true. And that's the Ish over here. The Ish succeeds in sending Joseph out. The Ish did not succeed in keeping Jacob out. Jacob overcomes the Ish. But this very same Ish succeeds in sending Joseph out. So I think that's my response to the question of why mention these fancy things? Because Joseph is part of it. Joseph is a luxury item. Joseph is very special. And we should never forget that. Jacob understood it fully. He gave Joseph the coat for a reason. The problem is nobody can stand the guy. And that's true. It doesn't matter. He's very special. That's the point. What else? Uh, and is uh, the price, uh, is that supposed to be a low price by way of contrast? Or uh, why is the Torah mentioning the amount of money that he was, uh, that was given for him? How much is it? Uh, is it 20 kesef, I think? Yes. 20? Or is it 30? Yeah. I don't remember. Let me see it now. Um, Estrian kesef. It's going to come up later in the story with the money. Remember, it's the, what the Torah often does is it is... I'm not sure if it's a lot or a little. I don't know. That's a good question. I have no way to answer that question. However, the money will, will figure in later in the Joseph story in more than one occasion. Uh, he's going to give them money. He's going to return the money on two occasions, etc. So we'll have to wait and see. I can't speak about the amount, but Joseph was. But there is a sale over here. It's not. Um, it's not like we know four hundred shekel kesef of Abraham buying them. That's a humongous amount of money. Esrin kesef, I don't know. I, I, the answer is I don't know, but I do know that the mention of the money here will is here to foreshadow. The money will factor in uh, in, the, in the Joseph story in more than in several places, actually. So we'll see when we get to it. Maybe we can reflect back on the 20 Kessel. I don't know. Uh, yes. Sibla, can yeah, I get yeah. something? Excuse yeah. me. Excuse me. Can I say just one thing? Yes. Yeah. This reminds me of the pattern that uh, Umberto Casuto pointed out. This is the beginning of the pattern of repeated Yerida ve'aliyah, Yerida ve'aliyah. The whole Joseph story is going down and coming up, going down and coming up. Well, I agree if Pesuto said that, I consider him one of my teachers, even though I've never met him. But I must say that if he said that, that's inaccurate because it's certainly not the beginning. It's what? Because we had it already twice in Sefer Breshit, very importantly. Abraham goes to Egypt and returns 
and Jacob goes to the house of Lavan and returns. And those are parallel stories. So yes, it's actually the third example, and there'll be another example. You're 100% right about going down and returning. But in the first two instances with Abraham and with Jacob, Abraham returns. Yes, Sarah is taken. He returns. Lavan goes, Jacob goes for 20 years to Lavan, which is parallel to Egypt. And he returns. But Joseph going to Egypt does not return. Nobody goes down and up, down and up, not return. But Yored ve Ole, not Lola Aretz. He doesn't go. Yes, that's a good point. That is true. And that actually is actually a very important point. We'll get to this later on. Joseph is a person, actually. There are people like this. It doesn't matter where you put them. It's irrelevant where you put this guy. You can put him in the house of Potiphar as a Hebrew slave, rises to the top. Then he's in jail, he rises to the top. Wherever you put this guy, he always seems to end up on top. And what's even more striking is that in the first two instances, it's not at all clear what he actually does. We know he's successful, but the Torah is quite circumspect about how he gets there. He doesn't appear to actually work very hard. He's one of these people that always rises to the top. And for the life of us, we can't exactly understand what it, why or what he does. But the fact of the matter is that that is where Joseph ends up. Part of the uh, dislike of Joseph may be exactly this point. It's one thing when you see someone working very hard and succeeding, well, you can respect that. But when you see somebody who seems not to work hard at all and always ends up on top, that is uh, can be problematic. But that's a good point. And we'll, we'll get to this later with the Joseph story about the down and up. And actually it's parallel. In each case, by the way, both the jail in chapter 40 and the uh, story of the pit in chapter 37, the jail is called, also called the pit, by the way. And here too, I did nothing that they put me in the pit. So it's exactly parallel. Being thrown into the pit and, and being able to rise from the pit is true in chapter 37. And it's also true in chapter 40, but we'll get there later on. Anybody else for comments? Can I add something about the Srim yes, Kesef? Yeah, go ahead. I'm saying um, if, we, if you look at the numbers as symbols usually, so a lot is 40. Oh. So my intuition is that 20 symbolically is uh, not so much. Could be, it's possible, I don't know. You are certainly right about 20 and 40, it appears elsewhere. That 40 is the big, 40 is the, 40, 40 is a life, 40 is a generation basically. Yeah. Or 40 is a transitional oh, yeah. number, 40 days of the flood, 40 days of Mount Sinai, 40 years in the desert, the judges reign for 40 years, right? We have in the Abayim Shana Akut Vidar, that's for sure. And sometimes you do have 20, which is a half of 40. Could yeah. Be. And the question would be, you know, what is that about? Why would it be not so much? What is the Torah's, what, what is that about? We'll have to come back to that. I, I don't know, it's a very good point. I, I, don't, I, I don't know myself. I have to think about it. Anybody else? How is, the, how, is the, how is the 20 coming to them if they didn't, if they were not involved in the sale? It doesn't come to them. Oh, oh okay. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, sorry about that. Okay, so, so, so by the way, but, wait, 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 make a different point. When you read the Chomish, to me, it's self-evident they didn't actually sell them. I, I don't think you can actually think that. However, and this is the important point, 
I'm not suggesting they're not responsible for the sale. Joseph said, I'm the Joseph that you sold to Egypt, says the Rashbam. Didn't actually sell him, but they caused his sale. He sold because he's in the pit, and they put him in the pit. So, the, and by the way, it's not clear whether Joseph knows they sold him or not. How would Joseph know? As far as Joseph's concerned, maybe they authorize these people to take him out. But in any event, whether they actually sell him or don't sell him, they feel responsible for it. And they are responsible for it because, in fact, they caused it. Because were he not in the... Let me make one last point about being in this pit, by the way, which is true of the whole Joseph story. The brothers said, let's take this kid and let's, uh, let's kill him. And let's see what becomes of his dreams. And they take, and Ruben says, oh, let's not kill him with our own hands. Let's let him die in the pit, no water or whatever. They throw him into the pit where they think, he, they presume he's going to die in the pit, right? He'll die in the pit, whatever. But the fact of the matter is, the fact that they throw Joseph into the pit where he will die is what actually brings Joseph down to Egypt. In other words, the dreams come true. This is true throughout Joseph's life. The dreams come true, Davga, because he's in the pit. And actually, not just the pit in chapter 37, but the pit in chapter 40. Joseph is, Mrs. Potiphar frames Joseph, and Potiphar throws him into the pit, into the bar, into the jail, which is for the pit. And he, he languishes there for two years. He asked the Saramashkin, get me out of here. I'm an innocent person. Get me out of here. Three days from now, you appear before Pharaoh. I did you a favor, but he forgets him. But the fact of the matter is, the fact that he forgets him is good because he remembers him when Pharaoh needs him. He remembers him, Dafka, when Paro says, I have dreams and I need someone to interpret my dreams. So in the Joseph story, it's part of seeing God's hand, I think. In other words, people act in a certain way. They think this will contradict the, 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 the intended outcome. But the opposite is true, that actually it's putting him into the pit, which allows, which, which makes the dreams possible. And it's ending up in the pit in chapter 40 in, in the jail, which makes Joseph, which allows Joseph to become the viceroy of Egypt, which allows his dream to actually take place. They bow down to him, they need food. So that throughout the Joseph story, we have this very interesting, people act a certain way, but God has, God has God's reckoning, you know? The dreams are true. And God will make, God and Joseph will make them come true, but there's the, there's the divine hand in the story as well. Okay, let me stop. Okay. Let me continue. No, just yeah. so your so coat, your just just a just a question about about your coat study. Um, yes. Where 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 you put me is that is that the writer of Samuel must must be seeing the 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 Dave Saul's pursuit. His endless pursuit of 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 David as divine providence, because because the whole thing could have been avoided by by a prophetic message to Samuel. It's over. There won't be any Jonathan being king. It's done. Uh, somebody else has already been anointed, and and God promising to protect Samuel. He doesn't. He doesn't. It never becomes an open message to Saul that you've been stripped of your garment. It's over. So that must well, I'm not be... sure that's true, uh, Shmuel. I'm not sure that, that would require a lot more thought because he does say to Saul, 
God has torn the kingship away from you. Yeah, but he's still but it he's, to a friend who's better than you. He doesn't say. But maybe it goes true. to his son. See, if he told me, no, I don't think that's the case because if it went to his son, the kingship would not be stripped from Saul. Kingship means you have success. It is a longer conversation. No, but I, but I don't but think that's the case. I, well, I don't think told me, man, we have the, to spend a lot of time okay, talking. All right. Okay. Let's leave it for now. Okay. Anybody else want to ask comment? Um, I think okay, Jennifer's been waiting. Oh, yes. Yeah, I just wondered. Um, thank you. Uh, okay. You know, in the pit, there's Joseph. Uh, and those traders come along, the first traders. Is yes. it Joseph's brothers who pull him out, thinking they can get more from from uh, the next group of traders? No, 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 or... it's not Joseph's brothers. My point is, Joseph's brothers don't know he's pulled out of the pit. They have no idea. They're busy eating. So, in other words, back to the pit. And the first them, group. There. Oh, so the first group of traders uh, come along, pull him out. Yes, and sell and to the sell him brothers. to the, for the twenty. Okay, so the brothers they sell they him for twenty. They, they sell him for the twenty kesefs of the Ishmael, and we'll bring him down to Egypt. Well, we'll see this later on. I think that's I got it. Clearly, the intention of the Torah. Yeah, got the it. The brothers got don't know, but see, Reuben goes back to the pit. This right. is the shot. Reuben goes the... back to the pit when he hears the brothers considering the sale. And Ruben's intention was to return him to his father. So he doesn't want right. him to sell him because his intention was to return him. And he and the brother right. discussing over the meal, hey, you know something? Maybe we just sell him, says Yehuda. Why, why should we kill him? We don't want to kill him. He's our brother. Let's sell him and we'll make some money. There's no profit in killing him. Let's, let's sell him. He's maybe worth something. Let's sell him. Right. And right. Ruben hears this. We're selling. If they sell him, I can't bring him back to, to Jacob. So he says, excuse me, whatever. He gets up from the meal walks 50 feet, 100 feet, whatever. Remember, they're not that far away because they can hear his cries. And then he goes back to the pit and he's missing. He runs back to the brothers. He's gone. The brothers have no idea, obviously. They never sold him. They're considering the sale. And Ruvain says, he rushes back when he hears them considering a sale. Right. And he goes back to the brothers. He's missing. What? Right. They don't say, well, of course he's missing. We saw. They have no clue he's missing. In the interim, these other people came from a different direction, right. took them, sold the Ishmaelim, the caravans right. in the desert. Listen, yeah, there's, no, there's no actually any other sensible way to read it, frankly. Right. There's, yeah. no, there's no other way. The got most common course is the shot. How Rabbi else can you read Silver? It? Rabbi yeah. Silver, I don't think we can have it both ways in terms of the distance of the pit from the brothers. Right. Close, you once said 15 feet. Let's say it's 50 feet. If the pit is close enough for them while they're feasting to hear his cries and his pleas, okay? How can a caravan show up, exactly. drag, drag the screaming kid out of the pit, and the brothers be um, uh, incense, in, in, you know, unaware aware of this? So I don't think, I really think it's not something to dismiss and say, okay, this is the obvious reading of the text. I think the reason, it's clear that it is not the obvious reason, or it's not as obvious, even though. It may be the true reading, because if it were, there wouldn't be so much confusion about it. Either the pit is close by and everything is natun and they get it and everything's going on and they hear him screaming. And then the, the guys come and it's not a quiet, surreptitious taking of the guy out of the pit. There are camels and people and men talking and they drag him out by, by his shoulders and someone goes in and pushes him from behind and another guy schleps him up. And this is an operation. So basically, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen with nobody being aware of it. So I really, really, I would love you to help me out here, but I really don't see it. 
as something that all oh, the brothers don't know. I think when when Ruven comes back and he says, for goodness sake, where is he? They know where he is. He's gone, guys. He's truly a Nenu, and we allowed it to happen. That's how I see it. Okay, then we have a disagreement. I don't see it that way. By the way, the Torah here does not mention the cries. It mentions it later on. Uh, it's also possibly cried before they threw him into the pit. I really don't know. They, I don't think there's a sense here that they know. I don't think there's ever a sense that they know. I think they presume him to be dead because if you're in the desert and you have no water, like with Ishmael, they don't know how they got out. They have absolutely no idea. Maybe, maybe someone else took him. I think the question of how could these other traders come by, uh, by the way, uh, it's, by the way, I would say something else. It's interesting. You talk about the camels. Uh, it doesn't mention camels. It mentions, it mentions the caravan of the Ishmaelim, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mention the caravan of the Midianim. Mm -hmm. It says some Midianite men came by. It okay. could be there are two Midianite men who came by or four Midianite men who came by who pulled it out. But when it comes to the Ishmaelim, there's a long caravan. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're taking big trips. They have a caravan. Maybe the Midianites are desert people and they're walking around the desert. They come across this pit. They see this kid. They pull him out and they sell him. There's no so sense think, that there's a whole caravan. Surreptitious, that the Midianim could have been a surreptitious operation. Could be. It's possible. It doesn't really say one way or the other. We know the Ishmaelim or Orchat Ishmaelim. Yeah, yeah, I like and that. And they sell them to the Ishmaelim, right. So one more thing. Really... The fact that they're Yishmaelim and that the brothers Shamu, is that something that we're expected to connect? In other words, so they agreed to the sale. I mean, do we do we see it as 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 a Torahitic um, accession to the a verbal kind of hint that this whole thing is agreed? That's a very good point, actually. That's an excellent point. But Yishma'u and Yishma'elim is a good point. Because, of course, with Yishma'u, the Torah plays with Yishma'u. Uh -huh. Right? Right. Okay. That's a uh -huh. very good point. Of course, we understand. The Ramban already says that the mistreatment of Yishma'u, the Ramban claims, the mistreatment of Yishma'u by Abraham and by Sarah, etc. The Ramban makes the claim that because of that, the punishment was that Yishmael is going to end sending, end up sending us out of the land. That's mm -hmm. the Ramban's claim. But mm -hmm. be that as it may, uh, I, I explained it a little differently, but the parallels of Yosef and Yishmael are clear. Mm -hmm. I say parallels, they parallel in many ways, but the bottom line is they're different in the sense that when it comes to Yishmael being sent out, which he is, okay, He's sent out, he's going to survive, he's going to be very powerful. But at the end of the day, Yishmael is not a covenantal partner. Only Isaac is covenantal, Yishmael is not. He has a blessing, as God says, fine. But he's not, we don't need him as part of our covenant. That's not true of Joseph. We need Joseph. Without Joseph, we don't have Jacob's bias. Jacob promises, vows to build the, the house, the inclusive structure. Without Joseph, you don't have an inclusive structure, which is why we have the language when Yehuda says to his brothers, uh, let's sell him to the Ishmaelim, the Ardenu al let not our hand be against him. And we all remember what is said about Ishmael, Yodol bakol v'yad tolbo. His hand is against all and all against him. And what the Chumash, what Yehuda is saying in effect, intentionally or not, is that he's like Ishmael in many ways. He's a taunter, he's a mocker. We don't like him, etc. He's thrown out. He's in the desert. He has no water. And all that's true. 
But the end of the day, Joseph is not Yishmael because we need Joseph. Without Joseph, there's no bayit. And that's the problem over here. How do we build a bayit out of this mess that that the brothers and Jacob have 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 created? That's the problem over here. Well, we'll get to that if we continue our story. I have to stop at this point. So we continue next week. One of the obviously the great stories of the Bible, and one that has all kinds of uh, is constantly being referenced, both in other parts of the Bible and of course in our tradition most generally. Joseph and the brothers is a central story, not only in the Tanakh, but a central story in uh, the Talmud, a central story in our prayers. How can we build a, how do you build a, a nation out of people that are so different and often can't get along with each other, which is always a great challenge. So next week we'll continue with this and finish the chapter and then we'll keep going straight. Mm -hmm. Next chapter is Judah and Tamar. So first we got to finish the Joseph story. Thank you. Thank you okay. so much. Looking forward. Thank you, Rabbi Silver. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you, everyone who joined us. Um, we're going to continue with um, tonight. We're going to continue with our sphere programming with Rabbi Zakir speaking about the scope of Torah. I just want to remind everyone as well that the deadline for the summer follow programs, both in person and online, um, has been extended to tomorrow. And it's going to be a really, really fantastic program with amazing teachers, amazing topics. So please, please check that out. Uh, you can find out more at plal.drishad.org. And you can also find out about all of our classes at drita.org slash classes. Uh, thank you again, everybody, Silver, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you.